Okay, well, we were running a little bit late because of the prayer meeting, so. Just a reminder on a couple of announcements. The Camp Rete garage sale, apparently, from what I've heard, is going, the, the sale itself is not started until Friday, but the, um, we, we, I made an announcement that they needed stuff. And that wasn't a prayer. It was an announcement. It should have been a prayer because they have been, from what I understand, absolutely overwhelmed with the response. So they have, they're, they're up to their eyeballs and things they have to catalog and price and everything like that. So uh, that is a real thanks to prayer. And also... Uh, we're planning a baptismal service. We haven't set the date yet, but there are f- I have two adults, two children. And so if anybody else is interested, uh, please let us know. And then we're also planning a social event for the church here on a Saturday night. We'll show a film, eat hot dogs and burgers and whatever, and have a good time, and have a hymn sing-along. And that will be on Saturday night, the 20th of May. Okay, I think that's also Armed Forces Day, so we'll have a little uh, uh, patriotic theme that night as well. I want to show a video, God is Not Dead 1. Since we've been talking about apologetics, we had the case for Christ come out. This is a very, also a very good uh, video, so we'll show that, and that will be... Um, Good to have a little discussion also related to what we've been studying on Thursday nights. Also, an update on Mark Perkins. He went into the hospital on Friday. They immediately took him to chemo. Apparently, this is an aggressive form of leukemia, but one that is uh, very treatable. And he's got a great attitude, doing well, very thankful for our prayers. And I've been uh, uh, texting with him daily. So he's he's doing good. I think he appreciates having somebody he can text out there and he said so far it's been uh, like being a club med doesn't have any problems but that chemo's coming it's going to hit him and it's a I, I he's heard and i've read that it's tough so we need to be in prayer uh, prayer for him as well as some of the other pastors kendall weeks bruce baker george meisinger that are facing some serious uh, health problems so uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we start this evening, and I'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in um, right relationship with the Lord and ready to study the Word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we have this time to come together to reflect upon your Word and your will, come to understand that. And Father, many times your permissive will allows us, because of volition, primarily the volition of Adam as it works itself out, his negative volition, disobedience, as it works itself out in human history, and you allow that to to work out its evil and its corruption in numerous ways, and among those are our health problems and illness and sickness, and Father, we pray for these pastors, for, for, for uh, Bruce and Mark and Kendall and George, and there may be others that we do not know about, and Father, we pray for them. We pray for their testimony. We pray that you would give their doctors wisdom and they might be uh, restored to their pulpits to continue to teach the word. We pray for this nation because the only thing that will turn this nation around is a change of heart of the people, a turning back to you. And we pray that um, you will do what is necessary in order to get people's attention and refocus them on that which has eternal significance. And Father, we pray that you would Help us to understand the things that we teach tonight, understand them, and that God the Holy Spirit would help us apply them consistently in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're studying the will of God because in our study of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 23, there are several times that David seeks the Lord to determine what he should do. So seeking the will of God is always related to decision-making. Uh, in fact, there's one well-known book, which I highly recommend, by an author named Gary Friesen that came out and received a uh, Christian Book Award back in the early 80s, came out in 80 or 81, something like that, called Decision-Making, 
and the will of God, and it was a very thorough study of this particular uh, this particular issue. And so, coming out of that, we've spent the last two or uh, le- three lessons. I think this is actually Divine Guidance Four, and let me, and so we are going forward. So I want to just review the fact that I'm interacting with a lot of misconceptions about how we know God's will. And we've heard, and the common position is that God has a perfect will for every decision in our lives. The key word there is every, every single decision. And that we are to live in the center of God's will, that God has only one specific thing for us in each one of these decisions, and that he reveals to us precisely what that will is. And that one of the keys to discerning this will is an inner state of peace or tranquility when that decision is made. Because what happens is people read in Romans 8 about the, the witness of the Holy Spirit to uh, our spirit. And this is nonverbal. It's, it's a sense of assurance related to salvation. Uh, that passage is not a divine guidance. It's not a revelation passage. The Holy Spirit is not communicating uh, content to to us and often people uh, to put a bright on the bright side of this they think that God the Holy Spirit is going to give them some sort of sense of assurance about whatever the right decision is to make on the negative side of that that's really just mysticism they're looking for God to give them a green light or a red light some sort of new revelation and if revelation has ceased then God's not going to tell you what to do He's told you everything you need to know to make any decision in life from the Word of God. That's what we mean when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. It's not just sufficient to tell us how to get to heaven. It is sufficient to tell us how to make decisions in every area of life. And that some some decisions involve a moral or spiritual issue, and God reveals what the issues are there. Others do not. And so the, if they do not involve a moral issue, you're not going to get out of fellowship doing it. If you can do it to the glory of God, then you can do whatever you want to do. And if God says, I really don't want you to do that, that door is going to close. And so it, it, he will direct our paths. That's the point that I've been making. And this whole view that, that is common and popular isn't biblical. It's a form of mysticism. And so we need to look at it. Now, the first thing that we've looked at is a definition. Definitions are very important. And there's a lot of different terms that are used by people when they talk about uh, the will of God. You hear terms like God's sovereign will, his decretive will, his declared will, his secret will, his... Uh, overriding will, his geographical will, and a lot of the some of these are synonymous, some of them are not, some of them are valid, some of them are not. So I defined God's sovereign will with regard to his creation that he will bring to pass or allow to pa- come to pass what he wills and what he's decreed. So a syn- synonymous terms are the decreed will of God or decretive will of God, the secret will of God, and the permissive will of will of God. And we only know it after the fact. God is not communicating that ahead of time. His moral will, spiritual will, revealed will refers to what he has revealed in his word. That's the only will of God we can know, is what he has revealed to us in his word in this church age, because revelation ceased. Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen eight. Uh, when that which is perfect is come, tongues will cease, along with uh, prophecy and the gift of knowledge, which in context are revelatory gifts. Revelation will cease because the canon would be completed. God finished. He, he gives us everything we need, and then he says, okay, the test for you in the church age is to know my will from knowing my word so that you can live your life on the basis of what I've told you. It's called wisdom. And if you don't learn my word, if you don't internalize it, then you're going to be sitting there going, God, tell me what to do. And I'm going to say, I already did. Read the book. Study the book. Go to Bible class. Learn the word. Okay? 
So, when we talk about things like God's specific will or his functional will or operational will or geographical will in different areas, that's always expressed through, through special revelation. It never comes through general revelation. It never comes through some sort of internal uh, vibration system, uh, inner light, any of those things. And then we have things like God's overriding will, and this occurs when you and I make a decision. We look at all the factors. We say, God wants me to do A. And God says, well, you did a B-plus job of going through the process of making a decision, but I really don't want you to do that, so I'm not going to allow that to happen. And then we realize that it isn't going to happen. So that happens a lot. God's not going to allow us to do what he doesn't want us to do or go where he doesn't want us to go. And sometimes he allows or permits us to make bad decisions, and we learn from those bad decisions. Sometimes he allows us to make really bad decisions, and we have to deal with the consequences for for our life. Uh, God overrides some of our decisions like he did with Jonah. He told Jonah, he says, i got a geographical will for you, buddy. You're going to go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, mm-mm, we'll look at this passage uh, tonight. I'm going to go to Tarshish. I'm getting out of here. And he ended up going to Nineveh because God's will will override ours when uh, he has a different geographical will. So I didn't, let me just, so I got these two circles here and making this chart. And I thought, well, maybe it's not real clear. God's sovereign will is the left circle. That describes everything he uh, allows and determines will happen in human history. The circle on the right is everything he has revealed. Now, God's sovereign will is what he permits. I added that since last time. And what he permits includes sin. Okay, so that's the area that's not shaded. But the area that is shaded, that's an overlap with his revealed or moral will, that area is not sin. So God's sovereign will allows the, his, his permission, he permits sin, but it also includes that which it includes the obedience of believers, that which is not sin. And, of course, all of God's moral or revealed will is not sin. Then... If you remember the diagram where you have, in my diagram, there's a, there's a um, left and a right circle. The left circle is our position in Christ, and the right circle is the, our experience. When we're in the right circle, when we're walking by the Spirit, we're in God's will. When we're outside, when we sin, we're outside of God's will. That's a clear and easy way to understand it. So last time I ended up with, with the eighth point. Got several more to go, and I hope we can wrap this tonight. And eighth point is, since we can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will before the fact, Questions about the will of God relate only to revealed information. I could say it another way. Questions about the will of God should only relate to revealed information. I mean, we're not asking quite, well, what does God want me to do? Does God want me to go on and get a graduate degree, or does God want me to go to work? Well, there may be other factors. You may be out of money. You may be in debt. Other biblical factors come to play. And if those factors are there then maybe you want to stay, um, you want to go get a job. Uh, does God want me to be in uh, this location or that location? And I know that I've told a story about how uh, I believe that God opened the doors, opportunities for me to go to Preston City Bible Church. But when uh, th different circumstances worked out in 2004, my mother died in 2002. My dad was here and um, had Alzheimer's. I'm an only child. Uh, I, the last year I was in Connecticut, I flew back to Houston 13 times. 
And so it was a wisdom decision more than it was a necessary decision, but it was, I think it was a wisdom decision based on Scripture and taking care of your parents that that it was an opportunity to come back to Houston, and God uh, opened opportunities for me to come back and for this church to start. So that's an application of wisdom. So I'm sure that I could have carried on long distance, many people do, but that would not have been, in my view, the best thing to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the principle of Proverbs 3.5. The negative and antithetical parallelism, we studied that in, in prophecy, the opposite is don't lean on your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all your heart. That is an intellectual function. We think it's not a feeling. And don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Even when we end up not taking into proper account all the data. What we do, you've done this, I've done this, we've all done this. We have gone through and we've labored over getting all of the information we can to make a wise decision. And then we're just not sure. Or we're praying, Lord, don't let me make a really stupid decision. And we're just going to trust the Lord. And he will direct us uh, through the circumstances. I'm not talking about an inner guidance or green light, red light, or any kind of special revelation. It's just that I've had this happen many times. All of a sudden, somebody else makes a decision, and I no longer have option A. I only have option B. And that's how, how God works. So the ninth point then, <clears throat> often it's taught from precepts of Scripture that God has a specific will for our lives in every decision. And so the question is, is there one and only one will for every decision? Or is the issue in many decisions biblical wisdom for living? Where the test it's how we go through the decision-making process. I remember when I was in ROTC, and this is true for anybody who's been in the military, you go through different uh, uh, FTX trainings or field training exercises. And uh, often what would happen in basic training, it happens in basic officer training, different things like that. They will teach small unit tactics for like a patrol leader, for a second lieutenant, and then you're taken out into an area and you're given your command and it may be three or four men, it may be our three or four men and women today, but you're, 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 you go out there and you've got a lane that you're going to go through some kind of situation. And you're given your mission, you're told what the circumstances are, and that you've got to take your team through down this lane and fulfill this mission. Well, you know that something's going to happen when you're going down that lane. You're going to get ambushed or so there's going to be an explosion or you know, so, or somebody's going to flip out. Um, something's going to happen. And you as the leader have to react to that situation and respond to it. And many times there may be different options of what you can do. And that And you may have two or three that are good, one may be better than the others, but they're all acceptable, and you may have two or three that are just wrong and a lot of times the, then the issue is to put the person in a pressure situation so that they have to apply all the things they've learned in the classroom and show leadership ability and it may not be the issue isn't always just precisely what decision it what the decision is that they make it's how they respond how they react how they go through the procedure and so that's a lot of what happens when we hit tests in our christian life is that god is testing us not so much to say are you going to come up with option a out of a thousand different options or are you going to go through the process by Confessing sin, claiming promises, trusting in the Lord, applying the doctrine that you know, and coming out with one of several viable options that are the result of walking by the Spirit. Now, 
This next point, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10, looking at some examples of how God leads. One of the things that happens today that's part of that option that I'm really talking about or against is that somehow God speaks to me. The subjective, mystical idea that God is confirming me in a particular course of action. And the principle is that what God does in private, he confirms objectively. This is a principle that runs all the way through Scripture, and uh, we saw it when we studied in 1 Samuel uh, 10, that, that God does something in private with Saul. Saul is ordained. Samuel uh, meets him, Samuel identifies him, and Samuel anoints him, and it's all done in private. There are people who claim that they have had this kind of a private experience with God. God has told me that I need to do this. But there's no objective confirming evidence of that. In the scripture, whenever God did anything in private, God always confirmed it objectively because God's revelation to us is an objective revelation. It's not a subjective You know, we're going to hear this term a lot on Thursday night in apologetics. It's not this mystical, fideistic kind of of concept that you have um, in in, in Scripture. So you have uh, Samuel takes a flask of oil, pours it on Saul's head in verse 1, kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you've departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And uh, it's interesting, Rachel's tomb is actually in Bethlehem, but they built a memorial tomb called a cenotaph uh, in the territory of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin and Joseph were Rachel's two boys. She died right after she gave birth to Benjamin. So the tribe of Benjamin, after Rachel died, uh, built a cenotaph or an empty tomb as a memorial there, and that's what Saul um, Samuel is talking about there. He says, uh, "Go to that tomb, and um, they'll say." That, first of all, now he's going to give confirmatory evidence. This is how you know that this wasn't just something private. First of all, you've been out here uh, trying to find your uh, your asses, and you haven't been able to find them. Well, they're going to be. Uh, there are going to be two men who are going to come and tell you that they've been found. So that's confirmation number one, and that your father isn't worried about him anymore, and he's not worried about you anymore. Then from there, you're going to go to the terebinth tree of Tavor. Now, Tavor is further north from there, uh, still in that uh, mountain territory and it's up more in the area of Esdralon, the Valley of Esdralon. And when you go there, now this may be another Tavor, because the Tavor of Deborah is really up north. So, And that Mount Tavor is really north. This must be a village down um, closer, because every other geographical area is very close. You'll go there, and there will be three men who are walking up to God at Bethel who will meet you. How are you going to know which three men? Bethel was one of the worship sites. Bethel is in the uh, midpoint of the um, distance between Jerusalem and up to Shechem. And there's going to be one of these men who's carrying three young goats. you got three men. Why aren't they each carrying a goat? So you got one guy, and he's carrying three baby goats for a sacrifice. So that would be unusual to see that. So that's not... A common thing can't just be anybody. So Samuel says this is the second uh, sign. You're going to see three men, one of them carrying three young goats. Another one's got three loaves of bread, and another one has a wineskin. And they'll greet you and give you two loaves of bread. He doesn't say you ask them for it. He said they're going to do it, and you'll take it from them. And after that, you'll come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen that when you come there to the city... So this is the third sign. You'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with their musical instruments, and they're going to be singing praises to God. 
And that was part of what the meaning of prophecy is, not just the concept of bringing a condemnation or uh, telling the future, but also praising God. And so that's the imagery here. And then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them. And that we studied that, and that means that he would join them in their singing of psalms and praises to God. And so there's these three confirmatory objective evidences that what God, God's will for Saul to be the king was uh, communicated in private by Samuel. But it's always confirmed by external uh, evidence. We're studying evidence some on Thursday night. God has God gives a lot of evidence. And on Thursday night, we're studying that there's right and wrong ways to use that evidence or to utilize that evidence. But again and again, we see God works in space-time history and gives evidence. So he gives confirmatory evidence here uh, of Saul. That's important. So um, Saul knows that's God's will for his life. He's had special revelation from a prophet, communicated in private, and also three confirmatory signs that can't be set up or can't be circumstantial. Now, the next example of how God has an individual will, see, that's an example. God had a specific will for Saul. Now, there were a lot of people in Israel that that God didn't necessarily have a specific will for them. They might have been a carpenter. They might have been a farmer. They might have uh, been a a vine dresser, they might have uh, grown grapes. They, they, there are a lot of different, um, different areas of work. Didn't matter, but for some people it mattered. But you don't see God going to everybody and saying, okay, this is your job, you're going to be a farmer. This is your job, you're going to be a baker. This is your job, you're going to do this. That's up to each individual volition, but sometimes it was important. It was important in this case with Saul. Second thing, I want you to turn to Jonah. Jonah is located near the end of the Old Testament, and it is part of what's called the Minor Prophets, not because they're less significant, but because they're smaller, uh, smaller books. Joel, I mean, Jonah has only three chapters. Everybody knows the story of Jonah, Jonah and the big fish, and Look what God says to Jonah at the beginning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Now, we don't know how the word of the Lord came to him. Did God speak to him as he spoke on Mount Sinai, where if he had had an MP3 recorder, he could have recorded it? I think it was audible for Jonah. I said, I'm not... I can't document that I just think think that reading through various things of that terminology it could be in a vision could be in a dream the scripture does not specifically say but God says that he has a specific geographical will for Jonah it says get up go to Nineveh the great city and cry against it for their wickedness has come upon me now what we have to understand is a little bit about the background here and that is that uh, Jonah is a prophet who is functioning during the period of one of the evil kings in the northern kingdom, uh, Jeroboam II, uh, roughly 793 to 753 B.C., and that his uh, ministry is also mentioned in 2 Kings 14, 23 to 29. So he, this isn't the only thing he did, but it's the only thing that is truly recorded. It is at a time when Assyria, the Assyrian Empire is um, on the ascendancy, and they are the enemy of Israel. Um, And so it's not much different today than Israel and Iran, or the United States and North Korea, or the United States versus uh, ISIS. And so God says, I want you to go to your sworn enemy, the enemy of your people, the enemy of your nation, and take them a message from me. And Jonah, is like most patriots, he hates the enemy of his people, and he doesn't want to go there. And the last thing he wants to do, especially when he hears what the, what the message is, 
the last thing he wants to do is to tell them that they have an opportunity to get out from under God's judgment. God says their wickedness is is come up to me, and uh, I'm going to give them an opportunity to turn to me, and if they do, then I'll uh, withhold my judgment. Well, he wants them to, Jonah's like many of us. Uh, this is this is a real problem, I think, a tension for a lot of conservative Christians. We don't like militant Islam. We recognize that there are a lot of Muslims around us that hold militant ideas that are Islamists, and that given the chance, they would cut our heads off. They are the enemies of Christianity. They are the enemies of our nation. But God wants us to take them the gospel and to develop relationships with them and to to give them the gospel. I think we need to keep our powder dry at the same time, but we need to take them the gospel. That's a tension for a lot of conservatives because they don't want to. We've got the same problem Jonah does. But God wants us serving the Lord in evangelism to those who are lost, whether they're atheists, whether they're liberals, whether they're um, Islamists, whether they're communists, that's our, that's our mission. So God tells him to go to uh, Nineveh, but instead he hops on a boat, hops on a ship to flee from God, as if you can flee from God. There's a real sense of irony there. If you're telling this story around the campfire, everybody starts laughing, like, well, you think you can run away from God? No, not at all. So he's trying to run away from God, and here's a map. It's 550 miles from Joppa to Nineveh. Okay, that's about as far as it would be from here to maybe Lubbock. And, uh, but he's going to get on a ship and go 2,500 miles to Tarshish. That's a lot further than it is from Houston to Los Angeles. He's going to get as far away as he conceivably can because, uh, because after Tarshish here in Spain, there's really no landmass that they're familiar with that's that's beyond that. He's going to go as far away as he possibly, as he possibly can. So this is an ins- was was everybody supposed to do that? Did God tell everybody to go to a specific location and do something? No. He did that at specific times and places for certain prophets. But aside from specific circumstances and situations, God didn't give that kind of direction. So it's not like God doesn't have a geographical will for your life, but, when, but God sometimes has a specific geographical will for your life. And the rest of the time, he, he, you're just, we're just governed by his moral will and our own volitional responsibility to serve him to the best of our ability and to do whatever whatever we can. Let's go to um, another example. Let's turn to um, Acts chapter 10. I think. Yeah, Acts chapter 10. This is a situation where Peter is sent as a missionary to Cornelius. Now, here's the question. Does God have a specific geographical location for every missionary? No. How many of y'all ever took a test in school? Okay, everybody. How many of you learned that in questions that include the world all and every, that you better be very suspicious that it's probably not true? (laughs) So, does God have a specific geographical will for everybody who goes on the mission field? No. Because he's given them as a believer the opportunity to decide how they think they can best serve God with the talents, the abilities, and skills that God's given them. Now, some people may say, I think I'm going to do pretty well on the mission field in XYZ country. And God says, I'm not going to give you that opportunity because I think you're going to do better in ABC country. And God's going to direct your paths. 
But you don't have to worry about guessing for the right one. We just trust the Lord, prepare, do what we can, and God's going to open the door. If I know a lot of pastors, I know a couple of pastors of doctrinal churches in Houston that if they had their their desire, they would be packing their bags and trying to start a church up somewhere in the Rocky Mountains in a heartbeat. But God hasn't give, ever given them that opportunity to, to go do that. When uh, Randy White left uh, First Baptist Church in Katy and went to be pastor of First Baptist Church Taos, my immediate response was, Lord, why him? Taos, fishing, hiking, skiing, why not? I wouldn't get any work done. So God has at times specific geographical will for people sometimes he does not it's the issue is the test so acts chapter 10 gives us a time of specifics this is uh, very much an interesting fascinating situation so turn with me to acts chapter 10 with peter and cornelius there are numerous lessons on decision making and the will of god in acts chapter 10 Acts chapter 10, here's the uh, map. This is Israel over here. In the middle, you have the Sea of Galilee in the north, the uh, Canaret Sea. And down here in the south, the Dead Sea, you have the Jordan River flowing from north to south. Uh, Just to the uh, northwest of the Dead Sea, you have Jerusalem. And then further northwest on the coast, you have Joppa, or Jaffa. Um, Joppa. Uh, in the New Testament, Jaffa in the Old Testament, because there's this thing that goes back and forth between the letter P and the letter V, or F, Jaffa, or and sometimes it'll go to a, to a V. You also have this in the um, uh, with with it, with in the Arab language because the Arabs can't say the letter P. So up in the north where you have uh, up here very, very far north, you have Caesarea Philippi. This is located at an ancient site that w- where they had a temple to the Greek god Pan. But the name of the area is Banyas. It's called Banyas, B-A-N, because the Arabs can't say P. Now, why is that important? It's important because there's no such thing as a Palestinian because they can't say it. They're Palestinians. There's your argument against any kind of settlement with the Arabs. There's no such thing as a Palestinian. All Palestinians. Okay, so we have Jaffa over here on the coast. We have Caesarea by the sea in the north. See, there's Caesarea Philippi up in the far north, and then there's Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritima, which is a beautiful, beautiful site to go to. And this is only about... uh, you know, less than an hour drive with traffic. So it's really close, maybe 30 miles. So it's, uh, what happens is that Caesarea by the Sea was a Roman city. You had, uh, you had Roman army stationed there. So uh, Cornelius is a centurion and he is, uh, he's stationed there with his troops, but he is a proselyte, what was called the proselyte at the gate. And he fears God, we're told in, um, in chapter 10, verse 2, he's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, prayed to God always. And about the ninth hour of the day, he had a vision. An angel of God came to him. So how do you know God's will on this matter? That an angel appeared, a direct revelation, right? This is special revelation, direct revelation. God is giving instructions to Cornelius through this angel. Angel appears to him, and and he says, uh, he asks, what, what, what is it? And the angel says, your prayers, your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa. And it's interesting. Where did Jonah leave from? Jaffa. See, Old Testament, Jaffa, New Testament, Joppa, same place. That Jonah left from Jaffa. Where was he taking the gospel? Eventually. To Gentiles. What's going to happen several hundred years later 
with Peter. Who's he going to take the gospel to? Gentiles. So when you think of Joppa, you think of Gentiles. God's grace to the Gentiles. That's what I teach when I take people there on, on our Israel tours, is that that when you think of these places, think of the doctrine that is taught there. In Joppa, you've got Jonah and the Gentiles, and you have Peter and the Gentiles. So send men to Joppa and look for Simon, whose surname is Peter, Simeon, whose surname, or Shimeon, whose surname is Kephas. He's lodging with another Simon, uh, a tanner. I pointed that out last time that Tanner dealt with with skins, and so he's perpetually got to become ritually cleansed. So here's Peter, who's Orthodox, who's always concerned about being ritually clean, and he's living here with the Tanner. So that was kind of an interesting situation, a little ironic. And so he's he sends these uh, messengers down, two servants, to get Peter, and then Peter has a vision. And the next day we read, they went on their journey, drew near the city. Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, which would be about noon. And he became very hungry, wanted to eat. But while they were making ready, he fell into a trance. So God's communicating to him through a vision, but it's direct revelation. He sees this big white sheet come down, a tablecloth tied off at the fore with holding all these unclean animals and tells Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Special revelation. This overturns all of the orthodox uh, kosher laws. Everything's overturned. Now, nothing is going to be treif. That's the opposite of kosher. Everything's going to be kosher. Last week, uh, when I was having lunch with Arnold Fruchtenbaum, we had uh, had treif. We had oysters, and it had some kind of bacon and something on top of the baked oysters. It was very good, and we both commented that it wasn't kosher. He said, you know how to make a shrimp kosher? cut off the tail, circumcise it. So, Peter's told that everything is now is now kosher. So, Peter says, I'm not going to do it. Verse 14. And then, again, this voice speaks to him, direct, objective revelation, what God has cleansed, you must not call common, or, or traif, or profane. And three times, Peter didn't get it the first time, second time, or third time. Notice he also denied Christ three times. He's, he's a little slow on the uptake sometimes. So and then it's taken up. But this is to show that God has declared Gentiles clean. As, a, as an Orthodox Torah-observing Jew, Peter would not even darken the door of a Gentile's home. He wouldn't go in for any reason at all. That would never, ever happen. He wouldn't eat with them. Uh, everything about being in their presence would be, make him spiritually unclean. So that's a situation. So in verse 17 we read, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind, otherwise he's just confused, as to what the vision he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. I think this is maybe, you know, on a scale of one to three, one is really a dubious sight. Five is, it's pretty sure, this is maybe a two or a three. This is Simon the Tanner's house in Jaffa. But it's got a, it's a tradition, but we don't know how accurate that tradition is, just a traditional sight. So they come, they ask directions for Simon's house, they appear at the gate, and they call out asking if Simon is there. And as Simon is reflecting, the Spirit says, and I don't know if this is overt or covert or how this happens, but it's specific. It's not general revelation. It's not a feeling. It is specific content that's revealed to Peter. Behold, three men are looking for you. So all of this in terms of decision-making in the will of God is we see that this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. This is specific revelation in Scripture, unique and distinct in this case to the apostolic era and it's communicated to an apostle, a leader of the church. And he, the Holy Spirit not only tells him there's three men down there, but go, get up, go downstairs, and go with them without any misgivings. Don't worry about it, for I've sent them. So he's given specific content. 
So that's that's one thing. Now the next thing that happens in Acts is we just flip over a couple of chapters to Acts Acts chapter thirteen. You've got a missionary situation. Now this kind of thing can't be reduplicated today because of of circumstances where we are. And in the church age, the revelation has ceased. So you have the church meeting, and they want to send out um, missionaries. And we're told in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So he's been in uh, very close association with the, the Herodians. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. Now notice, we didn't see quite that language earlier, did we? We just see that the Holy Spirit, a voice spoke to him in verse 15. Um, that made it clear, but we, don't, we, we haven't said that. It wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, here the Holy Spirit communicates something, and we don't know exactly how that happened. It's probably, I think it's going to be audible. There's no reason to think this is internal, that just reading something into the text, because we, we think that the Holy Spirit's guidance is some sort of subjective thing. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them, saying, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So there's obedience there in Acts 13, 1 and 2. There is specifics. But do we have that with the other apostles? When Philip goes, um, remember Philip goes down to to, uh, south and he witnesses to the Ethiopian. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit takes him somewhere. But that doesn't happen to every disciple every time. Those were unique uh, circumstances and situations. So what my point is, when we see examples in Scripture that are often used by people as examples of how God directs us, they're dealing with a dispensational problem. They're going to either the period of revelation in the early church or they're going to the Old Testament periods where God was giving specific direct revelation and that doesn't happen anymore so my point is don't look for God to speak to you audibly internally or in any other way to do your job for you when you have a tough decision to make the test is how are you going to make the tough decision the test isn't, are you going to try to get God to tell you what to do? That's cheating or something like it. Okay, tenth, tenth point. Knowing God's will, therefore, is based on the knowledge of doctrine that's been assimilated in the soul. It's how much you know the Word and your mature relationship with the Lord that matters. God the Holy Spirit teaches his doctrine. He stores it in our soul. He will bring it to mind. Uh, James 1, in the context of testing, it says, If any of you let lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It doesn't say, if, any of you do, if you don't know what to do, ask God. It says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. So that God will bring to your mind the doctrine that you've learned so that you can apply it to the, to the situation. And the Holy Spirit leads us. This is overt. This is not, I mean, this is covert. This is not overt. You don't feel it. You're not, you're not holding up, um, you know, some sort of, uh, some sort of, uh, like, like wetting your finger and holding it up in the wind or something and saying, which way is the Spirit going to blow and I'm going to go that way. This isn't like that. The command in Galatians 5.16 is to walk in the Spirit. That's the primary directive for the spiritual life. We walk by means of the Spirit. Now, a lot of people, how do you do that? Well, it's clear in the passage, number one, and then we have the conflict that we face between the Spirit and the sin nature in verse 17. And then Paul says, but if, first-class condition, he's assuming it to, to be true, if you are led by the Spirit... 
every believer is always led by the Spirit. It's comparable to what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is talking about in terms of God will direct your paths. It's not overt where the Holy Spirit's out in front of you telling you this is what you need to do, that he is working in and through behind the scenes, but he's not overriding your volition or your own use of your intelligence to take the doctrine you've learned and put it into practice. And so you say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's right here. Galatians 5.25. Galatians 5.16 to 5.25 is a package deal talking about walking by the Spirit. But the word for walking in Galatians 5.16 is peripateo, which means walk step by step, moment by moment, by means of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, same thing, first class condition, if we live by the Spirit, wait a minute, yeah, first class, I did that. First class condition, walk by, if we live by, in the Spirit, and we do, let us also, this is the command, if you're, in other words, what he's saying, if you are a regenerated, justified believer, then you're living in the Spirit. But you may or may not be walking in the Spirit. Now, it's a different word for walk here. It's not peripateto. It's not emphasizing that step-by-step, moment-by-moment walk. It's the Greek word stoicheo, which has the idea of walking by following in certain footsteps that are you're following a path that's laid out in front of you. Well, since the Holy Spirit isn't laying a, a path in front of me how I should go to work in the morning, What's it talking about? What's the objective path of guidance that's laid out in front of us? It's the Word of God. God the Holy Spirit leads us by the Word of God, and within that framework, we make decisions. The thing is, if we want to know God's will, we need to know the Word. We need to internalize the Word. And, and you know, the irony is, that most people who are making the most critical life-determining decisions are between the age of 14 and 34, and they don't care about knowing the Word of God. That's the last thing that they think will impact their decision-making. But if they're wise and they've internalized the Word from the time they're children, and they've memorized Scripture, and they've been taught. One of the questions I asked Arnold last week, that I, one of the main reasons I went over there to talk to him, was I've been reading his autobiography, as I've mentioned several times before, Chosen Fruit. little play on words there. And um, what he it tells a story about how he came to know so much about the Word. And when he was three years old, they were his family was now living in a uh, displaced persons camp in Germany. And this is about, maybe he's about four, this is about 1947, 46, something like that, after the war. And they were there for five years. His father couldn't work. Uh, nobody could work. It was, it, they were just taken care of in these displaced persons camps. So his father, who by this time has rejected everything he's ever been taught about Judaism and about God, he's become a atheist, he's become totally secular, but there's this tradition in the family because in Arnold's heritage, there's this lineage going back several generations of men who were rebbies. Now, a rebbe is different from a rabbi. A rabbi would be like the uh, spiritual leader of a local synagogue. A rabbi is, a rebbe is the head of a movement and would, in, would be influencing a numerous synagogue. So when you go to Israel and... Um, you see, you see the Orthodox, and some of them wear certain kinds of hats. Each hat indicates the sort of the, the Rebbe that they're following, the little sect that they're a part of, and it goes back to how they dressed in 18th century Poland. So they're, you know, in the middle of the summer, they're wearing this fur hat, they're wearing a coat with fur collar, but that's how their sect associated with their Rebbe was in, in Poland. So that's the background for Arnold's family. So his father is the kind of the end of the line because he's rejected it all. But Arnold's the firstborn son, so he has this sense of responsibility that I should train my son the way I was trained. 
So every day he just spends all day with Arnold and he trains him so that when Arnold is a precocious 12-year-old, goes and first meets with Ruth Wardell, who's a missionary with the uh, American Board of Missions to the Jews, and she's talking to him and he's challenging her understanding that that Yeshua is the Messiah. She she said afterwards, I, had, I didn't meet with him again for three months because I hadn't even had a conversation with a rabbi who knew this much about Scripture. I wanted to know, how did your dad train you? Because that that needs to be packaged. Your knowledge at 12 years old was phenomenal. What did your father do? He said he spent all day, nothing special, he just spent all day every day for five years telling me the Bible. And after we got through learning the Bible, and I knew everything in the Bible, he would just read and tell him the Bible stories and tell him what they meant. And then after uh, he knew the Bible and the biblical stories, then he taught him the rabbinical interpretations. That was the process. It wasn't anything that was systematic or categorical. It was just spending time every day. It, how Deuteronomy 6, you know, when you, uh, parents, when you're spending time with your kids, talking the way and teach them the word day in, day out, every day. And so everything in Arnold's whole life for five years had to do with what the Bible said. And so when he's 12 years old, he knows more about the Bible than anybody. Your kids could be that way too. How about that? It just means focus and priorities. The Holy Spirit lays the path out in front of us. That's how we know That's how we can walk by the Spirit. It's the Word of God plus the Spirit of God is the dynamic in the Christian life. Okay, another passage, Uh, Epaphras. Paul writes of Epaphras at the close of Colossians. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand... This is what he's praying. How should we pray for other believers? That they stand perfect, that they stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, that word for fully assured is really a participle, and it has the idea of... that, And it's a perfect tense, which means it's completed action. They have become fully assured in all the will of God. How did they become fully assured in all the will of God? They learned the Bible. They learned the Scripture. So he's praying for them that they may stand mature, not fall, and because they have been fully assured in all the will of God. Romans 12.2. We're told, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That comes from studying the Word of God. That involves so many different things. Now, I know there's a lot of pressures and time involvement in life today, but we have to know the Word of God. And the only way to do that is, A, you need to be reading your Bible every day. Now, are you going to have questions? Sure. I have questions. I read things, and I mark a question mark next to them in my Bible or electronically or whatever, because I read it, and I wonder what that means. I've never really studied that out. I need to come next time I'm studying. I need to go back to that and figure that out. Everybody does. It's people say, "Well, I get confused." Well, that's the way it is in every area of learning. Haven't you noticed that? You start off and you've got cancer. You go to the doctor. The doctor says, "Well, you've got cancer." What do you do? He uses a bunch of big words to describe it. Identifies the kind of cancer. And what do you do? You go home and you go to Wikipedia. Or you go to the one of the many medical sites, WebMD or something like that. You start researching it. After a while, you're confused. Confusion is always part of the process of coming to learning anything. We always go through that because we're all of a sudden hit with a lot of facts and we haven't got something to organize them. And a lot of people say, well, I read my Bible. I just don't understand that Leviticus at all. Well, great. Keep reading. After you've read all the way through your Bible this year, go back and read it next year and read it the next year and read it the next year, and guess what? It's going to start making sense. And in the meantime, you're going to be at Bible class two or three or four or five times a week because you're going to listen to other classes, and you're going to come to understand what those things are. And in two or three years, you're going to become pretty knowledgeable, and it will amaze you. 
But if you don't start by looking and reading things you don't understand, you'll never get to the point of being able to understand them. That's just how learning works. Ephesians 5.17 says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In context, that's going to talk about walking by the Spirit, walking in righteousness. Understand that's the will of God. Ephesians 6.6, he says that servants are to obey their masters, not by eye service, not by just acting like you're serving them, but as slaves of Christ. If you work for somebody, don't just think of it that you're working for them. You're working for the Lord. If you've got a client you're working for, you're working for the Lord. If you're teaching school, you're working for the Lord. You're not working for the school district or the principal. They're just incidental. You're working for the Lord. That that makes a whole difference. As slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, which is what? Servants, obey your masters. That's doing the will of God. Husbands, loving your wives. Wives, loving are submitting to your husbands. Psalm 32.8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. How's that going to happen? Well, in the Old Testament, it was through the written Torah, but it was also, if we take David as the psalmist, then it is also through some direct revelation. But we don't have that today, but we have, the, we have more than what David had. We have the completed canon of Scripture. That's how we get God's will. Well, I didn't make it to point 20, did I? I'm only at point 11. So we'll have to spend one more lesson on this at least next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see how, how specific your will is in some areas. And in other areas, you leave it up to us within, as long as we're walking by the Spirit and obeying your word, to put into application from a framework of wisdom and that we need to know your word. And the only way to get that framework of wisdom is spend time reading your word, internalizing your word, and making it a part of our life, learning to walk with the Spirit and walk by means of the Spirit, and that through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, you transform our minds, change us, and we come to understand and demonstrate in our lives that your will is perfect. And Father, we pray that you'd help us understand and implement this. In Christ's name, amen.